Broadcasting from the Investor Hour studios and all around the world, you're listening to the Stansberry Investor Hour. Tune in each Thursday on iTunes, Google Play, and everywhere you find podcasts for the latest episodes of the Stansberry Investor Hour. Sign up for the free show archive at InvestorHour.com. Here's your host, Dan Ferris. Hello and welcome to the Stansberry Investor Hour. I'm your host, Dan Ferris. I'm also the editor of Extreme Value, published by Stansberry Research. Today, we'll talk with Stan Major from Hotchkiss & Wiley. Among other things, Stan is really knowledgeable about energy investing, and we will talk a lot about that and a few other things. This week in the mailbag, listener Vicente found another sign of the top. Dr. Dominic F. wants to talk about the value growth trade, and listener Stephen is afraid that quantum computing might be a disaster in the making. And remember, the mailbag is a conversation, so talk to me. Leave us a message at our listener feedback line, 800-381-2357, and hear your voice on the show. In my opening rant, man, it's all over but the crashing. I just can't get away from all of these signs of extreme speculative excess. That and more right now on the Stansberry Investor Hour. So what did I do last week? I talked about my value growth trade, and I wrote about it even in my Stan weekly Stansberry Digest. And in the Digest, I said, this week, I'm not talking about any bearish stuff, right? <laughs> well, this week, I'm back to the bearish stuff again because I can't get away from it. And it seems to have ratcheted up. It has just ratcheted up. I, I don't even know where to begin. Let's start with a tweet by Robin Wigglesworth from Financial Times. He says, if equity fund flows continue at the current pace, this year we'll see greater net inflows than the preceding 20 years combined. Yikes, the preceding 20 years combined. So like people are crazier about stocks and shoving more money in, into them. Than they, than they shoved in in the preceding 20 years combined. At, at this pace, you understand, the number isn't there yet, but we're on pace to do that this year. Look at the put-call ratio, right? This is the, the ratio of put options to call options. So when it's really low, that means everybody wants to buy calls and nobody wants to buy puts. And it hasn't been as low as it is now uh, since the third quarter of what year again? 2000, right? And and the dot-com bubble had already started cracking then. But, you know, as we got into that year, people were like, nah, it's fine. Everything will be fine. Uh, another thing I'm seeing here is the Ameritrade Investor Movement Index. And, you know, they just take the data. I mean, they've got all these investors. So they, they just sort of put all this data together and kind of assess how bullish or bearish or what, you know, how crazy they are about putting money into stocks. And, and it's hitting a new all-time high as well. So people want to speculate more than ever. They want equities more than ever. As I've covered before, equities are are more overvalued. They're more expensive than ever. Whether you think they're overvalued, okay, I'll even I'll leave that out of the equation. But you can't argue that they're more expensive than ever. 
by the measures that have most closely correlated with the subsequent performance, especially in the case of the S&P 500. And the one there that I always use, of course, is price to sales. You know, over time, when price to sales is goes way up, subsequent 10 or 12 year returns are low. When the price of sales goes way down, subsequent 10 or 12 year returns are high and the, and the price of sales is higher than it's ever been, right? So we're, we're at like three times. We've never been at three times ever. So you can say, well, that doesn't mean anything, Dan, but you can't say it's not higher than it's ever been in history, okay? So at the moment when the when things are more expensive than they've ever been, investors are clamoring to dump money into them more than ever. That's my point here. That's the kind of moment we're at. I just, I find it too difficult to turn away from this. Maybe I'm, I've been too bearish for too long, right? Bearish since 2017. Gosh, if I keep this up and we don't get a correct, another correction, of course, I was really hyper bullish end of March, um, into April and for some months after that. So, you know, I mean, I, I, I can't really say I'm a permable because when the market is down 30%, I'm pounding the table. But I'm afraid that, you know, with the market making new highs and people pouring more money than ever and investors having higher sentiment than ever. And not only that, but they're more optimistic about future returns than ever. Natixis global investors Natixis is a big, big financial company, big European financial company. And they do this global survey of individual investors. And one of their conclusions in the latest survey is investors expect higher returns than financial professionals say are realistic. So the financial professionals surveyed say realistic long-term returns for clients, 5.3% a year. Individual investor expectations, 14.5% a year. And those numbers are above inflation. Wow, right? This reminds me of a story I heard that I'll never forget during the dot-com bubble where a couple went into, it was in a magazine or, or newspaper article somewhere. I'm sorry that I don't have the source, but I, I remember it well. And a couple goes into, uh, you know, a financial advisor and he, and, and he says, you know, I, I, he, he's optimistic and crazy bullish too. He says, uh, I think you can make 20% a year if you do this and this and this and this. Of course, you know, it's probably in 1999, you know, right near the top when nobody was going to be making 20% a year for a while. And they said, well, well no, we don't want to make 20% a year. We want to make 100%, right? So the, the expectations just get out of all proportion to reality. When the prices are priced for expectations to go be in the opposite direction, right? The higher the price, the lower the return. And prices are higher than they've ever been. And investors expect high returns nonetheless. So they're pouring more money into stocks than ever. It's a classic bubble moment. I just wanted to point that out once again, okay? And for my quote of the week, I'm worried about focusing too much on, on the bubble. I really am. But when I find evidence of it, I feel like I just have to report it. So I'm taking us out of that for the quote of the week. So, so I've said what I've said about the bubble, and the quote of the week is actually about books. And I thought it was a really good view with a slight financial spin on it on books. 
And the quote is by Thomas Jefferson, and he wrote it in a letter to James Madison, September 16th, 1821. And Jefferson wrote, books constitute capital. A library book lasts as long as a house for hundreds of years. It is not then an article of mere consumption, but fairly of capital. And often in the case of professional men setting out in life, it is their only capital. I'm going to read that one more time. Books constitute capital. A library book lasts as long as a house for hundreds of years. It is not then an article of mere consumption, but fairly of capital. And often in the case of professional men setting out in life, it is their only capital. I think that's brilliant that books last as long as a house. And really, when you think about the content of a book, if it's timeless, you know, it lasts longer than a lot, most tangible things, right? Houses and buildings crumble, but a great book, you know, we, we're still reading books that were written thousands of years ago, right? Homer and Aristotle and Plato and all those things. Really, really, really great quote. Books constitute capital. All right. That's cool. That's the quote of the week. And now let's talk with Stan Major. Let's do it right now. A while back, I promoted my Extreme Value newsletter here on the podcast, and a lot of you listeners visited the website and bought a subscription. Thank you very much for that. I'm now going to recommend those who didn't have a chance to see my filmed presentation back then. Check it out now while it's still available. And in this presentation, I share what I believe is my number one stock pick in more than 20 years of doing this. If you put a gun to my head, said, give me one stock pick, all your money right now, you got to hold it for several years. This is the one I'd pick. The business model is great. The management is great. I know them personally. The assets they own are fantastic. Balance sheet is great. It's well-managed. It's great. So I'm sharing this on this presentation and my Extreme Value newsletter readers already have access to this recommendation. And I just want to share it with those of you who haven't seen it yet. This company is currently trading at a price from which I believe you could make 10 times your money, roughly speaking, over the long term. And they got me on camera getting really excited about it. So if nothing else, I think the presentation might entertain you a little bit. So visit ExtremeValueVideo.com and get in on the opportunity before they take it down. Once again, that's ExtremeValueVideo.com. Check it out. All right, it's time for our interview. Today's guest is Stan Major. Stan Major runs the Hotchkiss and Wiley Mid-Cap Value Fund, ticker HWMAX. He covers energy companies and is a member of the energy and financial sector teams. Prior to joining the firm, Mr. Major was an analyst in corporate finance at Merrill Lynch and Company. He worked on a variety of common equity, equity linked and debt financings, as well as strategic advisory assignments for Merrill Lynch's domestic and international airline clients. That sounds interesting. Mr. Major, a CFA charter holder, received his BS in finance and marketing from Georgetown University. Stan, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. So, Stan, right away, I, I have to dive in. I, I, you know, I normally want to talk about, you know, some biological origin story types. Of, but right away, I have to ask you what it's been like to manage an active value fund for the last 10 years, just because that's such a, a huge 
topic in, in, in the past few years. Everybody's saying, wow, value has just done poorly. And over the long term, since inception, your fund has beat its, its benchmark. But the last you know, 10 years, certainly the narrative these days and, and the track record to support it is that value has been really tough. What, what's it been like for you? Sure. As you mentioned, it's, it's been tough. So, you know, I started at the firm Hodgkins Wiley, which has been around for 40 years. I started there 25 years ago. Um, so quarter century, you know, as you mentioned, I'm a portfolio manager on the mid cap product. You know, we have a small, long, short product um, and I've been covering energy. And, and I would say over the last decade, it's been difficult to be a contrarian, to be a value investor. But probably the worst part uh, would be, you know, also being an energy investor, um, you know, for the last five years, it's been uh, very dismal in terms of returns, uh, in terms of the narrative around the sector. Um, but, you know, as a value investor, you know, when I started in 1996, there were a lot of contrarians around. Value investing was very successful. Today, um, there are very few contrarians. Uh, there's a lot of momentum investors. Um, I believe that creates a lot of opportunities. Um, so, you know, when there's uh, a lot of supply and very little demand, uh, things can be very good. And I think there's a lot of opportunities out there, but not a lot of people that are willing to take advantage of them. So, um, you know, it, being an active manager in a passive momentum world covering a very out of favor sector, you know, ha has had its challenges historically, but I think that's where the opportunities are going forward. Okay. So, so I mean, I don't think anybody would deny energy has been a contrarian uh, bet, the especially the past year or so. Right around the time when energy prices went negative, when oil price went negative, that became a huge contrarian bet. So is that, I noticed in the performance of, of your fund, the one-year performance has just crushed it, just doubled the benchmark. Is energy a big contributor to that? It is. I, I think, you know, the rebounds coming out of the pandemic, um, our investments in energy have started to pay off. You know, we still think the returns in, in energy, both on the equity side and, you know, we don't do much in the way of the commodity, but the returns there are also very good. Um, and while the performance has been strong recently, if you look at longer time periods, it's, it's the returns have been very low or, or negative. Um, so, you know, when I walk through the investments, I, I think it's important to kind of, you know, put some numbers behind, you know, what I'm saying. You know, if you if you start at the commodity market and, and you look at the oil market, um, you know, today the spot price of crude is, you know, around $73. Um, if you were to go out a year and look at the futures market, you know, you can buy that in, in the mid-60s. So if the commodity market doesn't stay, doesn't change, if the spot price is, in a year from now is, is, is where it is today, you know, investors can generate an 11% unlevered return just by buying crude futures and rolling them forward. Crude futures are not a good predictor of, of future oil price. It's really an insurance market. So producers are hedging their future production. So their cost is the investor's return. If you take that a step further and look at the equity side, um, so you can invest in exploration and production companies. The returns there, you know, also known as the discount rates or the equity cost of capital, you know, we think those are around 10 to 20% return. So probably some of the best in the market. 
you know, another way of saying it would be, uh, you know, we think the price of these stocks are implying something in the mid to low $50 per barrel for crude oil, you know, which is well below the spot price. So, you know, we think, you know, the returns appear to us to be pretty high, no matter what part of the market you're looking at. What's interesting to me is, you know, there are very good returns here, um, but investors are disinterested. Um, you know, it's a small part of benchmarks. Uh, there's a whole host of ESG reasons why people aren't interested. When I look at the rest of the market, to me, the equity cost of capital of companies trading at 30, 40, 50, 100 times earnings is very low. Um, and there's a lot of risk. And yet investors can't get enough of them. So it, it is a very strange world um, where, you know, I think that there are low risk, high return opportunities. And there's a lot of low return, high risk opportunities. and investors are focused on the, in our opinion, the low return, high risk and, and avoiding the high return, low risk. Well, we are certainly of similar mind on that. It, it, it seems to me, it seems like a crazy toppy moment just in U.S. equities in general. But let's, let's stick with something that you mentioned, because as soon as we started talking about energy, it was the first thing that came to mind. The reason why investors don't like, well, just, we could even say fossil fuels in general, not just crude oil, is, you know, this ESG or, you know, it's mostly renewable energy, right? Everybody thinks that fossil fuels are a dying commodity, which is insane. You know, if you know the reality of, you know, how, how we poured ourselves around this world, but that's the narrative. And how do you see that? How do you see the increasing desire of utility companies and supported by by governments all around the world how do you see this thing playing out because to me it looks like a lot of resources and a lot of capital is being put into something that probably can't justify it you know it doesn't seem like the greatest business move to me and yet here we are yeah i i, th I think it is analogous to, to what i was mentioning you, you know, on, on one side of the spectrum, you have these low return businesses that are, are seeing a lot of capital. And on the other end of the spectrum, you, you see high returns and, and nobody wants to invest there. And, you know, what's what's interesting and the phrases you're, you're hearing in the market today are uh, fundamentals don't matter. Um, value investing is dead. Um, you know, I'd, I'd like to you know, kind of start with the fundamentals don't matter. Um, you know, they do matter. Um, and what do I mean by that? The framework I use, and, and maybe the easiest way to describe energy, which is a very complicated subject, is just take it to its simplest uh, framework, which is you know thinking about things as a balance sheet. And I imagine on on your podcast you've got a full spectrum of investors. You know, a balance sheet. The, the nice way of thinking about a balance sheet is it, it has to balance. Um, so you have to look at the asset side, and it is balanced by how those assets are funded. Um, and in a commodity business, you can look at what types of returns do you earn on those assets? Should you put more capital from the profitability that you're generating into that business? And then how do you finance it? You know, the debt markets, uh, what's the cost of that debt? And then, as I mentioned earlier, the cost of equity, the 20, 10 to 20% returns. That's, that's actually the, the cost of equity to, to the company financing those assets. So, you know, 
what does that mean for for investing in energy? What does that mean for the supply of the commodity? Um, when you think about that business, historically, what got the oil business into trouble, the exploration uh, and production companies into trouble was trying to grow their asset side of their balance sheet too quickly. Um, and the ability to do that was the access to capital. So if you went back to 2010 to 2016, you saw prices that were you know, considered very high, you know, over $100 a barrel. Um, profitability was very high. Companies had the ability to, to generate a lot of profitability, reinvest in their business, and also bring in outside capital. So borrow money very inexpensively. Um, you could issue equity you know, at very high multiples. Um, and so a lot of capital was going in. What happens is once you expand the asset side of the balance sheet so much, you end up with an oversupplied situation. So you know, the narrative back then was emerging markets are going to grow so quickly, you'll never be able to satisfy demand. Put as much as you can on the asset side because it's such low risk, the, the profitability is great. Amazingly or, or counterintuitively, but what always happens is, you know, when things are very good, uh, banks are really willing to lend because collateral values are high. They'll lend you money at very low rates. Um, equity investors will pay very high multiples. They're not really demanding much in the way of, of returns. And, you know, so low equity cost of capital. Unfortunately, um, you know, it, it seeds the, the, its own demise. You know, put too much on the way of the assets and, and the market becomes oversupplied. You outgrow demand and, and you end up with too much. And that's what happened with the expiration and production business. And it went to an extreme, you know, for a variety of factors. You know, one, uh, you saw, even though profitability wasn't great, U.S. unconventionals, also known as shales, were still able to raise a lot of money. Banks lent to them, equity investors uh, gave them more capital. So even though you didn't have the profitability to grow your assets, you could fund it, you know, through on the other, on the right side of the balance sheet. Um, those that changed. Uh, so banks, uh, you know, in the last few years have pulled away from the market. They'll no longer lend. Some people have just exited energy lending. Once you start taking the banks and the debt financing out, high yield um, walked away from the business. Um, so you saw very high interest rates and then equity investors became disinterested. So there's an ESG narrative where, you know, for a variety of reasons, investors don't want to invest. It became a very small part of uh, benchmarks. So people would say, why do you care? What does this all mean? It means that while the profitability is pretty good on the asset side, funding those assets is very difficult. And, and that's the issue that the industry faces and why you can get a very asymmetric return um, in the oil and gas business. I mentioned you know, that, that, that equity cost of capital is 10 to 20%, which is the return investors receive. But you could get this asymmetry where commodity prices go very high. And, and the reason for that is there is this, you know, disconnect or, or lack of functioning in the financing markets where you really can't borrow a lot of money from banks. You, you can't aggressively lever up to grow production. Investors don't want you to grow production. And so instead of expanding the asset side of the balance sheet, companies are doing the opposite of what they've done for history, which is they're actually trying to shrink the liability and equity side of the balance sheet. So they're paying down debt. They are returning capital to shareholders through dividends and share repurchase programs. 
which are creating value. And so when you shrink one side of the balance sheet, the other side has to shrink also. And so we would argue that the signs are that the world, the globe, might not be spending enough money on oil production. Um, so what are the signs of that? Uh, if, if you look at the offshore market, you know, where 30% of the world oil is produced, um, the rig count is less than half of what it was at the peak. Uh, if you look at capital expenditures globally, they're half of what they were at the peak. Um, and this is at a time when, you know, on a normalized basis, once we come out of COVID, you know, demand should go back to, you know, where it was. The economies have grown. You know, our estimate is that it will go back and it will start growing, albeit at a very slow pace, but you're going to see very high uh, relative to what we saw last year, oil demand. So going back to the 100 million barrels a day of demand we think is reasonable. The question is, if people aren't spending in a depleting business, will we have the supply? And that's the big question mark. So going back to my original question, then that you're implying that like the the you know the push toward renewables is not making any kind of a meaningful dent in in demand. It may be discouraging investors, and that may be you know setting up some an actually pretty good situation for for contrarians. But overall. It sounds to me what what I just heard was no mention at all of any worry about you know the the worldwide you know really political movement toward renewables. Like you're not worried about that at all. You're really confident about demand. Uh, I would say you know let's let's put some math behind some of that stuff. Look, renewables do have an effect. Uh, alternative energy efficiency they do have an effect on demand. Uh, that that is undeniable. The question is the pace and the amount, you know, so it, what I like to point through is, you know, let's, let's think about electric vehicles because then the narrative is one thing, you know, you can tell any, anybody can say any story they want, but you know, is it feasible? Is it, is it likely, you know, so if you think about the, you know, cars, trucks that, you know, roughly they turn over about 7% a year. So maybe the asset life is about 15 years. Um, you know, half of oil demand is road transport, you know, generously, including trucks, et cetera. Um, today, EVs, you know, are single digit share of the total vehicle sold. Um, let's assume that they were 10%. So if you multiply the 7% turnover by 50%, by 10%, you end up with on a yearly basis that, you know, maybe it's 30 to 40 basis points, you know, in a very optimistic scenario that the demand would decline. It, it's really not the very, very large numbers uh, that, that people assume. I, it takes a long time. Um, I, I think it's arguable that, you know, a lot of these technologies, et cetera, are very capital intensive, very long lead time, um, very energy intensive, and will consume actually a lot of oil in the path to getting there. So I would say it's not that we dismiss demand the effects of alternative technologies of electric vehicles it's that w when you model these things out it it tells a story that yes it does have an impact but it is not the impact that people would assume 
Right. I mean, you know, you're you're actually preaching to the choir, but I had to ask the question because I know it's on the listener's mind. But yeah, yeah, yeah all day long, I hear you. And, and maybe, maybe just a, you know, we can also do the math that you know that's the demand side, the supply side. You know, it 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 does tell uh, you know a, a pretty dramatic uh, story. So if you think about you know those numbers on the supply side, you know, people will say, oh well, oil production depletes at you know. 5% a year worldwide. I, I'm skeptical of that. If you think of, you know, the U.S. is, you know, call it, you know, 15 to 20% of world oil production with somewhere north of a 20% decline rate. You know, you've got, you know, the rest of the world, if you assume the 5%, you, know, you come up with that the world is depleting it at, you know, probably not 5%, it's probably between 5 and 10%. Um, and so if we don't spend money, if we don't replace the production, you could see, uh, you know, a, a pretty significant drop in supply. Um, and, and I think that that asymmetry is, you know, where demand is very hard to affect in the short run, particularly with growing economies. And the expectations are that the world economy is booming. Um, but supply might not be there to meet it. You, it, it's a vital commodity that you need. The, the world can't, you know, operate without it. So you, know, you could end up with this asymmetry where uh, there is not enough supply to meet demand. And, you know, if you think about commodities, there's, there's kind of three pricing regimes. One is you have too much supply, so prices go down to cash costs. That forces producers not to produce. Uh, you know, a balanced market where it's where supply and demand meet. It's where, you know, producers get, you know, their costs of capital returns and, and an undersupplied market, you know, whereas where instead of it's the opposite of the oversupply, you're actually trying to force uh, consumers not to consume. And, and that's a very, very high price. And if we end up with, you know, a, a disconnect between supply and demand, you need to try to force consumers not to consume. It's an inelastic commodity. When we saw high oil prices last time over a hundred dollars a barrel, we were actually still growing demand. So, it, those prices can be very, very high if, if we do end up with an undersupplied market. And so I think that's what gets interesting. So I mentioned at the start, look, you don't need an undersupplied market. If things stay where they are, you get very good returns. But, you know, the asymmetry is also very, very nice. Right. So the, the counter narrative then is go ahead, push renewables down our throats and discourage fossil fuel production and investment if you must, but you're just setting up a fantastic contrarian play and, and a fantastic opportunity to get in that third pricing regime, that third investment regime of higher returns uh, for some period of time. Exactly. I mean, if you, if you think about, you know, that, that balance sheet framework, but also the people managing those balance sheets, what they're thinking about. Um, you know, they're looking at it and saying, okay, my assets, okay, they might be good, but profitability is good today, um, but how am I going to finance it? It's very expensive. Banks don't want to lend to me. Equity investors don't want me to grow. And if you think about the majority of oil that, you know, produced around the world, it's not what happens in the U.S., what people think about. It's very long lead time projects. You know, take, as we mentioned, uh, deep water oil is 30% of world oil production. 
to get something on stream takes a decade. You, you have to shoot seismic, you have to agree to licenses, um, you have to drill exploratory wells, then you have to appraise it, then you have to develop it. There just aren't a lot of companies or investors, you know, as, as bullish as I am on oil, uh, the thought of, uh, you know, doing projects that won't come on until 2031, if you started today, um, it's just very unlikely. So, you know, you are really putting it to the U.S. shales. If we get an undersupplied market, that's really kind of your only short cycle supply. And as I mentioned, that's, you know, at best 15 to 20% of world production. Okay. Now this, uh, this fund that you manage, Hotchkiss Wiley Midcap Value, energy is a big component, but the biggest component is financials, correct? It is. Um, so again, you know, as I mentioned, it, it being a contrarian, being a value investor, being an energy, um, it has been difficult. Also, being an investor in financials is difficult. My the the co-manager on the product, Hunter Doble, covers financials, um, and, and it again, uh, people are very skeptical of of financials. Um, if if you look at the businesses, um, you know they trade it you know, 10, 11 times uh, earnings. Um, when you, the thing I like to do is, you know, take one over the PE, which is the earnings yield. So you're getting a 10 or so percent earnings yield. Um, companies can buy back stock, which creates value. So you might even be getting a better earnings yield than that. Um, and, you know, similar to energy, uh, it provides uh, an offset to, you know, what potentially could be a very significant change, uh, you know, in the world. So, you know, what am I talking about? So if you look at interest rates, I think in 3,000 years, we haven't had negative interest rates. Uh, I would argue interest rates seem very low. Uh, I would also argue that quantitative easing pushes um, the, the level of interest to, to rates they wouldn't be if they weren't doing that. Um, I also think that while quantitative easing in and of itself might not cause inflation because it, it ends up on bank balance sheets that doesn't get lent. Some of the programs that we're now seeing globally, which we haven't seen historically or in limited degrees, you know, if you provide stimulus, if you provide loans that you don't have to pay back, that could potentially lead to inflation. Um, and with inflation, you could see higher interest rates. Um, what benefits, um, in addition to oil, would be higher interest rates benefit financials. So again, you might have that asymmetry where uh, you're paying, you know, ten or eleven times earnings today, but those earnings, as interest rates rise and financials net interest margins expand, they they might be even less than that. Um, and so it, it, it's been difficult, um, you know, historically focusing on those areas because the wind has been in our face, you know, interest rates have dropped. Um, there hasn't been a lot of inflation. Uh, growth stocks uh, ha have been going up in price, you know, regardless of what they earn. Um, and so, you know, we look at the portfolios um, it, as an actively managed fund and we say, look, we're buying things at very low prices. Um, if the current envi environment stays where it is, so if oil prices stay where they are, if interest rates stay where they are, investors in these areas should earn higher than market rates. Um, and if things turn out 
better than we expect, uh, they should be well above market rate. So I, I think that when I look around at portfolios, it seems like investors have maybe too much in, in, in debt instruments, you know, at very low interest rates historically. Uh, they have a lot of exposure to long duration assets. They have a lot of exposure to growth. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, they have very little exposure to things that might hurt their purchasing power, like inflation, et cetera, and we would benefit. So uh, the way I think of it is, you know, most insurance policies have a cost. Um, you know, this insurance policy probably has a return. Oh, I like the way you put it. Yeah. I'm going to go back to um, the general topic of energy for a second, though, Stan, because there's, there's a specific thing uh, that's on my mind. You did talk about the balance sheet discipline that that energy companies um, are exercising these days. And uh, a similar trend is running through the, you know, the, the mining sector, uh, the materials sector, you might you guys might call it. But I notice if your website is up to date here, your sector allocation is less than the benchmark than the Russell Midcap value. Is is there a reason for that? I, I wouldn't read too much into that other than, you know, look, the, you know, materials are correlated with energy, uh, you know, they in terms of global GDP growth. Um, you know, we would argue that probably the valuations are a bit better in energy than they are in materials, but it's very similar dynamics. You know, the, these industries have been told don't grow production um, and yet demand is growing. <laughs> so it, it, you can end up with a lot of the same uh, conclusions in that area. Um, it's just, we would argue that probably energy, we think the risk re reward is better. Um, and if if we looked at you know adding that it, it gives us you know maybe more exposure than we would want to global GDP growth so you know that that would be the reason for a lower weight in in uh, materials. Okay, not now, not reading uh, too much in is yeah. is what what I need to do. <laughs> there's a, there's also there's a specific question I have. I noticed just looking at at your website, just looking at the characteristics of your fund. It defined the typical market cap range for your fund between 500 million and 20 billion. And at first I was like, mid cap is 20 billion. Wow. And then I thought about it and I thought, well, you know, when there are trillion dollar market and $2 trillion market cap companies, 20 billion is mid cap. And the more surprising number is, is how low the 500 million is on the bottom. You'd think that would kind of inflate as well. Do you really have companies in your portfolio between 500 million and 20 billion? Sure. And your, your question is going to get me uh, into a rant about passive investing. Um, All right. So here we go. Yeah. yeah. So w when I started in, in 1996 and we launched the fund shortly after that, you know, it was, you know, call it 500 to two or 3 billion probably. Um, today, there are mid cap companies defined as, you know, well in excess of 30 billion. Um, one of the issues that you run into, and this is where my rant on, on passive investing and indexes go, um, if you look at the makeup of our benchmark, uh, you know, the, I believe it was the largest stock in the Russell mid value last year was Twitter. Um, so again, it's a very large company, uh, 
not a value investment in my opinion, um, but it was the, yeah. the largest part of our benchmark. Um, and then, you know, so what are in these benchmarks um, and, and passive investing? I think, you know, it, it's interesting because um, investors or consultants, et cetera, compare us to the benchmark. And when I look at our benchmark, it is overloaded in, uh, stocks there's some gross stocks in there there's some high growth stocks in there high multiple stocks in there but there's also a lot of bond proxies you know there's also a lot of staples a lot of REITs a lot of utilities historically those things don't do well when interest rates rise or there's inflation and, and what's interesting is they're thought of as being low risk um, but they might be very high risk um, and so it's interesting when when I look at the benchmark I would say gosh I wouldn't invest in that um, you know, plus one of the other issues in, in passive investing, as we're seeing some of these meme stocks come in, um, you know, those tend to be categorized as value because, you know, they're not growing. Uh, they don't have a lot of profitability. Um, and, and the valuation, you know, is very high. So passive investing to me, I, I think, is creating a lot of distortions in the market. Um, it is investing without figuring out what the business is worth. So an active manager, as I mentioned, we, you know, we go through and try to figure out, okay, what are the returns? What's the earnings power? What's this worth? Uh, a passive investor is saying, oh, I, I like this theme or, or I like this group of companies or because I think it's going to go up. And what that does is it creates distortion in the market. Actually, Stan, the algorithm on passive is even worse. Receive a dollar of capital, throw it at the benchmark. I mean, it, it, it's worse than that, isn't it? It, it, it is. It, 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 <laughs> I, I think eventually investors will wake up and realize, you know, again, there's this 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 capital mechanism that we described in energy, which is uh, investors look at it and say, okay, well, this is your cost of capital, and if profitability is high, capital will flow towards it. Today, I, I would argue that the the capital markets are broken. Um, you know, we are investing in things with low levels of profitability um, or no profitability, they're seeing a lot of capital. The more capital you get, the lower returns go. Um, and, and so it's creating all these distortions in the market. I mean, if a good example would be meme stocks. You, know, you see the valuations. Does it mean that we should be adding movie theaters like crazy? <laughs> Probably not. Um, you know, but that's what the market is telling you. Um, you know, does it mean that we should be adding a lot of, you know, you know, SPACs, you know, the, the great thing about SPACs is they actually provide forecasts. You know, when you go through as a, you know, a, a somebody who looks at fundamentals and you can calculate and say, okay, this business, okay, you've shown me five years, what does the return on capital look like from this proposition? It, in a lot of cases, it looks terrible. Um, and you can look at businesses and, and say, well, gosh, you own this asset and it cost you a hundred million the market is valuing it at 1.6 billion. <laughs> Why? The returns don't look very good. You should pay less than uh, you know 100 100 million. But but that is what's going on. And so we are funding a lot of very low return businesses, in my opinion, and that's not a good thing. And we're starving capital in places we might need it, like you said, like commodities, energy, etc. So it it usually doesn't end well, but uh, it, it's going to be very interesting. Yeah, you know. I, I've begun to think of myself. I'm I'm starting to look like you know 
the last bear who's about to be gored or something because I start scratching my head about a stock like, you know, AMC or GameStop or something. And I think, well, what if all this money they raise, they really do something good with it? <laughs> what if it really works out? It would be crazy, wouldn't it? But, you know, the odds of that are, I believe the odds of that are really poor. But I, I feel like the fact that I'm even drawn into thinking about this because management did the right thing, right? I mean, that's what you should do when your stock is egregiously overvalued. You should sell as much of it as you can, raise as much capital as possible. Yes. I mean, and and I can't comment specifically on those companies, but if you think about it, you know, those, why are, why do management teams, you know, raise equity? Because, because they the can. cost of equity. <laughs> yeah, because they can. And because they believe the cost of equity is very low. Now, the cost to the company is the return to the investor. So if they believe like, hey, this is a low or even negative return, uh, the investor is going to get a lower negative return. And so, you know, when, when you look at these companies in this framework, you know, of, of a balance sheet, uh, they believe that you know, the, the, the cost is very low and so therefore the returns are low issue. Um, but, it, and it's not just the meme stocks this is going on if you look at, a lot of places in alternative energy or, or just growth stocks in general, a lot of these businesses are businesses that we have a lot of familiarity looking at. And we look at it and say, hey, there's no barriers to entry. There's a lot of capital. Uh, people are trying to grow for growth's sake. The valuations don't make sense. Um, this is a bad idea. And it's, it's writ large. I mean, there's, there is a lot of instances. And I, and I think the best, again, going back to the SPACs. I mean, you know, as a value investor, we're used to looking at commodity businesses. I can look at, you know, what invest, you know, what these forecasts say, and it's like, okay, this is a 2% return on capital business, and yet people are paying multiples of the capital. And you look through how somebody could possibly recommend this on the sell side, and, you know, it's usually a multiple of revenues. Revenues are not profitability. Um, and if you have, if you get swarmed with a lot of capital, they, I would argue that the, the returns will actually be lower than that 2%. So it, it is, uh, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. You're not the lone bear. <laughs> you don't want a lot of these things. Uh, I think what will happen is eventually, as I said, fundamentals do matter um, and they can matter significantly and quickly. Yeah, they can matter significantly and quickly. God, I feel like we could stop there and, and that would be like the most effective uh, way to do this. But we have been talking for a while. I want to get to my final question for you. And it is simply, if you could leave our listeners with one thought today, what would it be? Sure. So uh, the one thought I would use is, you know, have a framework for how you view the world how you view investments. And, and, you know, it could be as simple as, you know, what I, I mentioned, the, the balance sheet, you know, and I, and I think it's applicable to everything we've talked about, which is, okay, what are businesses doing? Are they growing their assets? What is the cost of capital? Uh, the cost of the company is my return. So, you know, if you take that and, and look at the equity markets, um, where is capital flooding? Uh, it's into a lot of speculative areas. Um, Will you get a return there? And the answer might not be what investors, how investors are positioned. On the other end of the spectrum is where probably where the opportunities lie. You know, businesses that you know aren't trying to grow their assets, 
that have high equity costs of capital, they can create a lot of value. And, and when I look at the energy business, I don't see the assets swelling. I, I, I see them actually probably getting smaller. Um, you could end up with a tight market. And these investors, the, these management teams, excuse me, can create a lot of value in this framework. If, if they buy back stock, um, it, it, if they consolidate, there's a lot of efficiencies gained. So the thing I would leave investors with is have a framework, you know, think about things in terms of assets and how they're funded, um, what, what can happen in, in, in the world, um, and, you know, use that as a lens to, to viewing investments. And, and you should get a return on your capital um, as, a as well as a return of your capital um, and try to avoid things that are, are very speculative. And, and then I would be maybe the other corollary to that is, you know, what if you're looking in the rearview mirror, you probably see very low interest rates, very low inflation. You know, those things can change. Um, if you see, you know, a lot of money supply growth um, that can lead to higher interest rates and inflation, the investment dynamics of the world can change, like I said, very rapidly and very significantly. So you know, those would be my two things uh, that have a framework, but also recognize that the rearview mirror is probably not a good predictor of the future. Oh, I love that. I love that because especially the first one, you know, that the assets and how they're funded, looking at the balance sheet, because it keeps investors out of the typical mistakes of trying to predict the stock market based on the headlines and following fads. It's very bottom up. And yet, if you look at enough balance sheets, you get a real feel for industries and and for you know the the uh, the financial what do I want to say the climate in general don't you it's that's that, I like that Stan I like that a lot thank you for that thank you uh, you bet so thanks for being here and we'd love to give you a call back in six or twelve months and and see what's on your mind then oh that'd be fantastic yeah I really enjoyed this a lot thanks thanks for doing it thank you. I really enjoyed that. I think that we do a good job of finding people whose job is putting their own and others' capital at risk. And that constitutes a kind of skin in the game of, of investment that there's no substitute for it. You can't, so you can't do anything else that's going to give you that same perspective. Putting capital at risk is what it is. If you're not doing it, you just don't have that perspective. And people like Stan, who've been doing it for decades, more than two decades in his case, they tend to know a lot, a lot of really valuable stuff for real investors. That was great. All right, let's take a look at the mailbag. Let's do it right now. On June 24th, I invited Dr. David Eifrig on the show to discuss the greatest upset in the history of American retirement. If you missed the event, you still have another chance at Doc's thesis, but in a different way. Dr. David Eifrick says what's coming next is a phase he calls financial lockdown. So consider this your final wake-up call. He believes millions of Americans will be pushed down out of the middle class, out of private retirement and private health care, and out of a decent life based on independence and privacy. Visit www.messagefromdoc.com to find out what's happening, what's coming next, and most importantly, four steps Doc says you should take right now to protect your investments in the years to come. Again, that website is messagefromdoc.com.
In the mailbag each week, you and I have an honest conversation about investing or whatever is on your mind. Just send your questions, comments, and politely worded criticisms to feedback at investorhour.com. I read as many emails as time allows, and I respond to as many as possible. You can also call our listener feedback line at 800-381-2357 and tell us what's on your mind and hear your voice on the show. Kind of a light mailbag this week and and nobody on the call-in line. But, but we had a few good ones here. The first one is from Vicente. And Vicente just wanted to write in to say, I'm in a work trip in Augusta, Georgia. After a long day of work, I'm sitting enjoying local bourbon in a rooftop bar, and I hear this gentleman pitching someone over the phone for strategies and systems. His argument is that the system will tell you when to sell or buy, guarantee to win eight out of 10 trades, and he's pitching the compound effect of 8% a day. Yes, Vicente says, a day. And then he says, like, what? 8% a day compounded? It seems impossible, but it's an amazing pitch. The dialogue is like, quote, imagine now instead of 100 US dollars, you have 200,000 and you do 8% a day compounded. Anyway, it made me think about the podcast. Have a great day. Keep us all sharp, Vicente. Vicente, thanks for that. It speaks for itself, and I'm glad you sent it in. Next is Dr. Dominic F. And Dominic F. says, thank you for your great show. You mentioned in your last show the growth value trade. I tried to follow your trade. That value and growth will shift totally makes sense. You mentioned a signal in the chart in June, which I cannot see. I have attached the growth chart versus value, and the chart growth was... In the chart, growth was always above value in the past 20 years. Looking forward to hear from you on how to set the chart to see the signal. Or was it the wrong ETF? Kind regards, Dominic. No, Dominic, um, you used the Russell 2000 growth in value. And I said you could do that and you'd, you'd see the same effect. And what you have to do is, sure, if you just set a 20-year chart, you're going to see really dramatically, you'll see it on a like a 10 or 11 year chart from 2009, it just looks like growth takes off and the two lines never touch again. However, what you really need to do is set it exactly from the moment when I'm talking about, it. you can't just look at the chart of, uh, you know, the long-term chart and then look at where it is in June of this year and say, but, but the lines don't touch. That's not how it works. You have to start it at the beginning of June. And indeed, if you look at the Russell 2000 growth ETF and the Russell 2000 value ETF, and you start them at the beginning of June, you will see that the, the value ETF is down about 5%, and the Russell 2000 growth ETF is up about 2.5%. So that's a pretty, pretty good differential. And I'm saying that that dip... That's a dip in the value versus growth trade and that you can buy value there. And I think it's going to continue to outperform overall as it's done for several months now. Okay, so so what you do is you you have to start the chart from there. And you also I'm using FactSet and I used to use Bloomberg. You can do the same thing there. And what you do is you start them at the same moment and then you index. You don't look at the absolute values, you index them from 100. So if you do that, you start them both at 100. Well, the Russell 2000 growth is at 102. 
about 102 and a half. And at the end of that, you know, roughly month long period, the, the value is at about 95, just call it approximately. So that's, that's how you have to do it to compare them easily to see the relative movement in them. I hope that helps. Good question. I'm glad you asked it. Finally, we hear from Stephen. And Stephen says, hi, do you think the dawn of quantum computing will be a Y2K-like event? From what I'm reading, quantum computers are developing at a rate where they will soon be able to crack standard public encryption systems. Potential consequences include personal loss, business losses, even military and state losses. I have to believe that our military leaders have their pulse on this threat and are planning accordingly. Should investors not be pressing management at the companies they invest in on how they are preparing for this threat? What about our brokerage companies? Please let me know if this is a chicken little Y2K scenario or if I should actually be concerned. Thanks again for all your great work on the podcast, Stephen. Now, Stephen, I'm not a tech guru, and I'm certainly not going to predict the impending dominance of quantum computing. In a, a previous guest asked the same question months and months ago. We asked Eric Wade and he said, no, it's, just, it's not nearly as far along as anyone thinks. So it's not nearly the imminent threat that anyone thinks. And from my viewpoint, sure, maybe quantum computing could crack standard public encryption systems, as you put it. But what type of encryption would it enable? There's always, there's always another side to it is my only point there. It, it, it's not a problem until it is. I'll just leave it at that. And I shot Eric an email. He hasn't gotten back to me yet. And I'm going to keep your question and maybe we'll hear from him again next week. But, you know, I don't think we really need to because I doubt anything's changed in the few months since he answered it the last time. Anyway, that's another mailbag. And that's another episode of the Stansberry Investor Hour. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. We provide a transcript for every episode. Just go to InvestorHour.com, click on the episode you want, and scroll all the way down and click on the word transcript and enjoy. If you like this episode, send someone else a link to the podcast so we can continue to grow. Anyone you know who might also enjoy the show, just tell them to check it out on their podcast app or at InvestorHour.com. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, help us grow with a rate and a review. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is at InvestorHour. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle there is at Investor underscore hour. If you have a guest you want me to interview, drop me a note, feedback at InvestorHour.com or call the listener feedback line 800-381-2357 and tell us what's on your mind and hear your voice on the show. Till next week, I'm Dan Ferris. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Stansberry Investor Hour. To access today's notes and receive notice of upcoming episodes, go to InvestorHour.com and enter your email. Have a question for Dan? Send him an email. Feedback at InvestorHour.com. This broadcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be considered personalized investment advice. Trading stocks and all other financial instruments involves risk. You should not make any investment decision based solely on what you hear. Stansberry Investor Hour is produced by Stansberry Research and is copyrighted by the Stansberry Radio Network.